Welcome to the Libro Europe podcast, European Libro Forum project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and today I welcome Radu Magdan. Ragnu is an associate research at ELF, is also a Romanian analyst and a former prime ministerial advisor in Romania and Moldova. Radu is also the author of the policy paper Conference on the Future of Europe, Towards a New Social Contract and a Europe that Works for Everyone, that is going to be the focus of our conversation. And after that, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of July. I'm here with Radu Magdin. Radu, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Great hearing you all. Oh, it's great to have you here because you wrote this fantastic policy paper, which is titled Conference of the Future of Europe Towards a New Social Contract and a Europe that Works for Everyone. This is must read. Radu did a fantastic job bringing up some really important points when we think about the future of Europe and in particular in this paper on a new European social contract. And Radu, throwing it to you, you describe it very well, particularly the progression from World War II to 1980. And you also mentioned that there were signs that there were need to renew this contract. There was a need to think this kind of social system again. So just to place this in the conversation for a starter, tell us your description of the social contract and what are the threats? Um, one thing I learned in political communications, you know, uh, both as a practitioner, as somebody also who looked into political science, is the fact that we should always keep it short and simple. You know, and I think this is one of the basic expectations also from the people who listen to us, no matter how sophisticated we are. I think that particularly in the context of the pandemic, we are flooded with information. So um, excuse my simplicity, but simplicity is needed. So when we're talking about the social contract, I would say that the best description of a historic, you know, uh, social contract that we all remembered is the 1930s New Deal. It was simple. It was called New Deal. The basic idea is that people who governed and people who were governed, they had the deal. And that deal did not work any longer. So in 1930s, somebody, FDR to be more precise, invented, proposed, came in front of the people and said, I offer a new deal. Periodically, any kind of deal in any kind of society is being renegotiated preferably by democratic means, and we don't need uh, any kind of revolution. So evolution from this perspective in terms of deals in society between the governed, us citizens, and the ones who are elected to govern by us, normally we negotiate, we talk to each other, you know, periodically we update each other, like, yeah, you can enjoy power, but guess what, I want to be happy as a citizen as well. So this is the essence of the social contract of any kind of deal, what this continued relationship of, let's say, rights and obligations in between me, the little guy, you know, man or woman, you know, who is a taxpayer, you know, and you, the governing bodies, you know, essentially a bunch of smarter people than I am. Otherwise, normally I wouldn't bother to come to vote, you know, speaking of abs increased abstinence as a problem uh, across the world. So, this deal had, of course, like, like including a house, periodically you need to repaint it or you need to refurbish it or you need to do something. Every few 
decades at least, you know, if not every few years, normally you have to refresh it. In Europe, here speaking, because we started with the Conference for the Future of Europe, we spoke at a certain mm -hmm. moment in time in the history of European integration, particularly in the Western world, about the so-called the 30 glorious. Les 30 glorious, it was more famous, you know, in, in uh, let's say, in EU science, you know, and that those three decades were essentially perfect. What did that mean? You know, each new generation would would live not better, but much better than the previous generation, you know, simply because there were a lot of opportunities. Well, at a certain moment in time, you know, this engine of growth wasn't what it used to be. And of course, when, when the economy doesn't work as it used to work in the past, you know, this feeling of, ah, you promised me a better life, which is part of the New Deal, did not really, had, to, had really to be reinvented. And we had such moments in the 80s, we had such moments in the 90s. And perhaps there was, let's say, more prosperity at the beginning of the 2000s, and then it hit us, you know, the economic crisis starting 2007, 2008. And then we also had different kind of crisis because a deal, a social contract, is not just linked, you know, to the economics, it's also, let's say, an identity package. So the refugee crisis, for example, was something which altered, in a way, trust in the social contract as well. And nowadays, we're in pandemic times where, let's say, sometimes we we were, well, we were confident initially or hopeful for part of the governments that they would deliver, you know, at the same time, you know, the more time passes, the more our expectations moves from the immediate health concern to the economic fallout. In case such an economic exists, of course, people are interested, what's next? So this is the right moment to speak again about the New Deal. And from this perspective, the Council, uh, the Conference for the Future of Europe has essentially said, like, let's consult. Of course, this exercise is not perfect, but at least it shows again an awareness at the level of EU institutions, national governments, European Parliament, you know, all the, let's say, all the groups represented in Brussels, you know, from a democratic perspective, essentially says, guys, ladies, let's talk about this New Deal. It is interesting, uh, you were just saying historically how the expression New Deal worked so well, and people keep looking for shorter expressions that work as well as that one, the Green New Deal. So yeah, I totally agree with you, make it simple. Actually, in economics, there's the KISS, which is keep it simple, stupid, <laughs> that we, we're, we're so know from the Clinton administration. You brought something that I, I, I really hope that we can get to into more detail. And I promise our listeners, if we don't get it, I'll ask Radu to come back, which is the confluence between identity crisis and the economic anxiety. But before that you go into solutions, you present three issues that could be on the basis of a new social contract. And that is because you make this also very good point in the paper about the need of lawmakers and institutions to rethink citizens' well-being. So if we don't do that, then the populists will take over, they will start m mining the system and start destroying the system from the inside. So you go into three issues, tell us what they are. If I were to simplify even further from the from the paper, I would I would use three R's to make it uh, memorable. I would say a rethink of growth. Separate from that, I would say redistribution, and third, I would say reskilling. And here I will explain one by one. When I say um, a rethink of growth, I mean that conventionally and historically in the past few decades, we used to separate. Growth with growth, the economy is the economy, and here we have let's say some liberal solutions, for example, and. Individual is individual, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, 
with the complexity of, of the economy, of society rising. Uh, as Danny uh, Roderick puts it, a new strategy must abandon, you know, the traditional separation between pro-growth policies and social policies, you know, because this dichotomy, this this split is unnatural at a certain moment, you know, because at the end of the day, speaking of social contract and deal, any kind of deal has to deliver. A deal is a win-win, if we were to speak in terms of, you know, negotiations or in terms of, let's say, international international relations. So this has to become a win-win. It's not so simple to separate any longer, you know, economic growth, you know, and individual opportunity. Let me give you a very concrete example from current days Romania. In case, for example, the prime minister says, friends, we are topping Europe, you know, as regards economic growth. It's going to be the World Bank or somebody else says it's going to be 6% or even 7%. But me, average Romanian citizen, I don't actually see a 6% more money in my pocket, you know, although, of course, it would be populist to say it's automatic translation of economic growth into personal prosperity. But nonetheless, I would expect at least more economic opportunity. So this is what I mean by say by in a way reconciling and rethinking, you know, this theoretical, you know, but important growth component uh, at the at the general level and individual, uh, let's say, opportunity. Second, redistribution, and you don't have to be a socialist, a social democrat, you know, or a populist, you know, to believe in redistribution. I'm simply saying that that any kind of model, including any kind of work in any kind of company. Me, for example, I'm I'm also an entrepreneur. I run a consultancy, so. At a certain moment in time, you need to either redistribute tasks to make sure that somebody is not in the burnout, you know, or to make sure that people in the company are all going in the same direction, the same in society, you know, because at the end of the day, you don't want, you want a, a winner society, a society mm -hmm. who is winning as a whole. Again, these are not theoretical sound bites. I'm simply saying that at a certain moment in time, if if you can't really be prosperous and enjoy your prosperity, even in the most liberal of senses, you know, if you're going with your Jeep down the street, but you see a lot of homeless people in the street, that's not really a prosperous place. What do you want? And you, yes, you can create a bubble, you know, you can isolate yourself for a while. But at the end of the day, you need to trust also public services. What good is it if I drive a Porsche Carrera and I have to take refuge, you know, in a in a private hospital because I'm afraid to go, you know, to a public hospital? You know, uh, am I really rich in case my kid is feeling insecure in in going to school simply because things are becoming more socially rough in let's say in part of town and so on? So at the end of the day. You know, redistribution is sometimes smart. I don't mean, you know, the redistribution the populist way or exaggerated, but the idea that sometimes the state has to come in, you know, a, a minimal intervention, but a positive, mm -hmm. a positive action, you know, in the sense of curtailing, you know, and nudging, if I were to use an economics term, helping out discreetly, you know, the way to, to social progress. Third, Reskilling, the third R, and by reskilling, you can also say reintegrating those people who have lost their jobs. I think that we are living too much sometimes in cliches, you know, including in terms of crisis, you hear all too often, particularly from people who are pretty well uh, reskilled, upskilled. Yeah, every kind of crisis is an opportunity. 
it's in principle an opportunity, but it's not an opportunity mm. for everybody. Sometimes, you know, speaking also, including of smart liberal policies and, and creating the context in society, you know, uh, in which people can really manifest that individual liberty, you know, and that, you know, that drive, that, that competitiveness drive, which is supposed to be of essence of, of liberalism, you need, you know, to level the playing field to make sure people actually get access to, to education, you know, or to the next level. I'm putting two things on your radar from this perspective. One, this fourth industrial revolution, and this, I wouldn't necessarily say danger, but really a competitive threat, you know, uh, of robotization. Of course, and this is one of the basic component of any kind of new deals, because I think that on the radar of any kind of stakeholder in a, let's say, in a modern economic society will be this, this match between how do I get more money, you know, how do I have this growth, you know, and how do I keep my people happy? Are we sure that somebody will be more happy by receiving any kind of pilot's minimum wage and not doing anything and just watching some robot do something? Or is it that work, speaking also liberal, liberal values, for example, you know, helps you become a better man, a better woman. It's, it's part of your self-esteem. And then, you, in fact, you want to help people to work, not just supervise, you know, uh, by, by having, you know, um, a Pepsi or a Coke or whatever else, you know, kind of drink, just watching robots and having a supervisory job. So I think we need to think about it simply because efficiency is a value. You know, but at the end of the day, in social contracts, it's more efficient if I were to do a reframing to keep people happy. Otherwise, you know, people will turn you down. Huh? It will turn the table, you know, and will turn you down from power. And you may be surprised. You may be replaced by a populist simply because a populist would come with a more simple message and say, I respect you. You want the job. I give you job, you know, and then yes, people will understand that will go further. So these are the three R's, the rethink in terms of growth, the redistribution, you know, and the reskilling. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why I have Radu on the podcast to give us uh, all the R's that we need to understand this. And two quick points, and, and please feel free to do a follow up. On redistribution, that is a fascinating debate between between even liberals. There's this maybe a perspective from outside of liberal values and ideas that it's a monolithic vision. It isn't. It, there's classic liberalism, there's neoliberalism, there's social liberalism. And each one of these people in different philosophies do look at redistribution in a, in a different way. So something for people to follow up also. And then on reskilling, and this one, yeah, this one I'm going to really ask you to, to do a follow up. There are people who say that if you have, you know, social basic income and you're watching the robot work, that you can become more artistic, more creative, find yourself an, a different job, a different occupation. So what's your reaction on that point of view? Because I do agree with you in principle that... There is going to be a lot of people that love labor work and they want to do labor work and they don't want to, you know, be working behind a desk if they are doing the work they love. So where you stand on that? I think we need to have an active conversation in between the private sector and, uh, you know, between, between the all stakeholders involved. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things which is not as strong, with very few exceptions in Europe, you know, um, this relationship in between, let's say, um, employers, entrepreneurs on the one side, you know, political stakeholders on the other side, unions, another citizen organization on the other side, isn't what it used to be a few decades ago. 
if I were to to um, to make a certain generalization, although again there are differences between countries in Europe, I would say that the capital has won the game. Has it has been the winning ideology more widely across Europe? Perhaps it's not, for example, the case in France, you know, where you periodically see strong stri uh, strikes or other kind of, let's say, social events of impact. But it's particularly in Eastern Europe, I would say you don't really see strong unions. The reason I say the need for a more inclusive stakeholder debate, because inclusive stakeholder debates, not only at the political economic level, but also, let's say, at the civil society level, it diminishes frustration. We have a saying in politics, sometimes, including in campaigns, you can't always solve problems, but you got to leave the people the opportunity to steam off. And sometimes part of the work in, in politics and in campaigning, you know, this is beyond ideology, but this is real life, you know, including as regards to any new deal, is hear people. You know, If I don't get to do this live, normally I do this via focus groups in the sense that I listen to what people, you know, beyond any kind of quantitative stuff, you know, who put me at 17%, 20%, 5% and so on. I actually hear sound bites from people like, yeah, I like fish. Where is my fish? Brexit. No? Uh, and, and, and so on. So these are relevant things for us because I believe that we're starting to become out of touch. Normally, the private sector is very ambitious and it should be so very ambitious. But sometimes in this quest for productivity or, or progress, we tend to forget that this prosperity is also meant to help not only, let's say, our individual or corporate or national goals or growth uh, and so on, but also to make people happy. <laughs> and this is a part of the deal because if you're happy, but I'm vastly unhappy, I will make sure that I perhaps, uh, you know, not destroy your happiness, but I will keep you busy, you know, so that you're at least partially mm -hmm. happy for a while until I'm happy as well. So any kind of this transition has to be thought, I'm, I, I trust a lot creativity. And I trust a lot creativity because I think that in any kind of, let's say, rapid transition, and in the 2020s, we're going to see a rapid transition, including this green digital growth is a rapid, if I may not say also perhaps partially forced transition, because we may not all be ready for this. I'm coming from Eastern Europe, you know, and no matter how efficient I am and how much I love efficiency, I would say in, in some countries, even across Europe, not to mention outside Europe, we are still dependent of, say, on part of the industrial heritage from the past. And if we, even if we want to, uh, re, to transform something quickly, we may not be able to do it without the social cost. And then at the end of the day, uh, sometimes, and we have seen this experiment, speaking of social con uh, contracts in uh, Latin America. For example, I looked recently at the case in Argentina or look recently at the case of Chile. Sometimes uh, you are in a really weird situation in which you're allegedly top class, but then you lose elections by being top class by certain standards. And I think that one of the considerations for any kind of politician, you know, or to qualify to upgrade these people, statesmen and stateswomen. I think one of the basic things on the radar in the next decade will be, how can I do a fair deal for my people, stay in power and be modern enough so that I'm not backward? You know, all the, this trio is essential, you know, and the reskilling is gross, goes across this because 
reskilling starts honestly from the basics, you know, starting a conversation with the people saying like, guys, ladies, it's, it's not about you and me. The world is changing, you know, and we can't live in the past, but we can win the future. And to win the future, we need to become, let's say, more, more engineers, you know, or we need to do more on this side or more on this side. And this is part of an active conversation. And believe me, people are not dumb, you know, in case you, you really, I, I think this is one of the basic things uh, which not everybody has a, a great education, but we should not underestimate what common sense, because at the end of the day, any kind of new deal is about common sense. The moment in which you are smart, but you lack common sense, then you have a break, you know, and people no longer listen to you simply because that smart element becomes arrogance in, in people's minds. I, I say this why, you know, because like you said, and I'm going to, I'm going to finish uh, here on the, any kind of reskilling starts by this common sense in which we tell people we need to upgrade. I'm going to do this myself. Please join me and let us rise together. This is a fascinating point that you're just making, because let's start a conversation, either if you're talking about reskilling or even redistribution, all this needs to involve the citizen. And you make this tremendous point on your paper, which caused already shockwaves around some people that I know, which is you argue for a change in philosophy of governing. And you were just talking about the examples in Argentina and Chile, but there are a lot of them here in Europe. United States is another example, which is to govern, but outside the expectations from the citizens that are being governed. So the idea is, and I, I'm quoting you now, we need to get over the idea that governing can be kept separate from public opinion. So we go a little bit from the Athenian perspective of democracy to the Madison in the United States of demo representative democracy. But I do agree with you. And when I read that, um, you know, I had shivers because there is that tendency of governing for the better of the people, but we don't ask the people if this is better for them. So please get into that. I think there are two visions on this at the end of the day. They're including in Europe, we can see this. Not, not, I would say not all in the EU because the examples I'm going to give as one side of the pendulum is Switzerland where periodically you have referendums on almost everything, right? And on the other side, you see uh, increasingly uh, some tendencies, particularly in Eastern Europe, you know, uh, for uh, a liberal, but perhaps appearance of decisive, uh, you know, uh, government. Uh, so on the one hand, you have somebody who says, I know it, I'll kind of listen to the voice of the people, or I am the people, you know, which is, uh, also, uh, let's say a very strong, uh, with a very strong uh, populist uh, spice in terms of speech. But I would say um, what needs to be done uh, from my perspective is uh, let's look at the difference and gap between two R's again, between responsiveness and responsibility. I say this why? Because social media and this flooding of information, you know, uh, that we're faced with, you know, focuses us to be to confuse responsiveness with efficiency. At the same time, policies and particularly wise policies take time. You know, one of the reasons why you see European legislation less contested 
than, I mean, Brussels-based legislation, less contested than other pieces of legislation, is that it also takes time. Normally, it takes years, you know, from the moment of, you know, of a green paper, white paper, you know, then it, you know, uh, then it comes into the parliament. It also goes into the council. Every all kind of interest groups try to lobby it, and so on. You know? On the other side, sometimes you see a tendency by governments, particularly under the guise of crisis, to say, I'm going to give an emergency ordinance and I'm going to solve it now. But sometimes there is no impact assessment behind this. Or to speak uh, in even plainer language, you know, people haven't a clue about what they're regulating on. They're just based on guts or the idea that that piece of legislation would quickly solve something that would please the public. So we, at the same time, we need to achieve a balance. Me as a government, in case I want to be popular enough to drive a successful agenda, I need periodically to listen to the people. But at the same time, what I'm saying is that I need to also anchor the people, you know, as regards the direction of the future. This is the destination. Periodically come back to the people and report and say to create trust and say, I promise this, I'm doing that. Because otherwise, you're simply just caught into this tactical quagmire, which is, let's say, daily media debates, and that's it. You know? Because each day, particularly, you know, I'm coming from a Latin country, and it's a very exciting country, but sometimes I have the feeling also looking at debates in the US and other democratic uh, environments that all of us have become so polar uh, polarized, you know? And it's polarization is, is such a, a, such a, tendency nowadays, the basic question is, how do you create trust? And the way to create trust is these two pillars, where on the one side, periodically, I show that I listen. At the same time, I show that I know something and I have a specific direction. In case you spend too much listening, then you're going to be blocked in terms of decision making. And there may be some strategy, but no execution. So no deliverables. And after four years, you can't say to people, if you want to renew your mandate, I listen to you guys, you know, and that's it, you know. At the same time, you know, you want to get people involved. And after four years of also delivery, people can say, yeah, but he was also a nice guy or she was also a nice lady. Well, that's why we're doing the conference on the future of Europe to, to get people involved. But and as you said, and very correctly, so then to get into action and, and translate that into policies that people um, think and believe they need. As we're getting to the end of the conversation, and as, as, as I was expecting, I, I don't have the time to go to the perfect storm of economic insecurity and cultural grievance, but I'll, have, I'll ask you to please come back so that we can go a little more into that. But at the end of your paper, you have recommendations on the renewal of the social contract, and you go into three that I think are very valuable. Please explain them to us. As mentioned, these pillars of, of reskilling, of uh, increased uh, responsibility, you know, and this rethink of growth, these are the pillars on which we can lay a new social contract. Um, it's not by chance that I try to make this as memorable as possible, and it's not by chance that I think communications in the 2020s will succeed if only uh, it matches, you know, policy acumen, good policies, to, to make it even more simple, with, let's say, a sense of political strategy and direction and simplicity of communication. At the end of the day, what was the New Deal and how we can compare it with what's happening today? The New Deal was a very interesting combination of smart policies 
help by the government when needed for people to go beyond the crisis. It separate excellent empathetic communications. We don't have nowadays the equivalent of fireside chats like FDR had in the 1930s, but this could be immensely useful, including as periodic, you know, comebacks on televisions by presidents and prime ministers, leaders of parties. And I would also say separate from that, this political strategy acumen on how you can link expectations management to the people and buy time until those policies deliver. This is essential, this combination of, let's say, because I say this why, because all too often, including sometimes in uh, ideological circles, we, are, we tend to place too much focus on one pillar, either on communications, and then we're too shallow, because we're just masters of communications, or on policies, this is in principle correct, substance is good, but if you don't manage to connect substance with style and spinning, how you sell this to the public, you know, then uh, this is gone. A new deal, a new social contract starts with respect, openness. I think this is being done via the conference, but it also starts with, after this listening mode, with a strong element of leadership. Once you have listened and you have, let's say, based also on that feedback and also your own ideas, you move forward. Why? Because in interesting times, you know, to use a compliment for the age we're living in, we need decisive leadership. And this decisive leadership, you know, is what impresses people, it's what mobilizes people, and this is what creates happy people, not frustrated ones. I'm going to steal two of your also sentences that you use in the paper. And I think this are also very valuable. One of them is that government and institutions will have to see public services more as investment rather than liability, which I think is a fantastic point. And then a second one, social contract spending will have to match the real scope of social problems. So they look simple and, and, and in a way they are, but at the same time, they are very complicated to put in place. And the explanation is pretty simple. Uh, if I were to put it in even simpler terms, things is as follows. Let's say you're a great liberal prime minister, a very successful lady or man liberal prime minister. At the end of the day, a crisis like COVID comes up and people have expectations about the health sector. You can't simply come and say, well, I'm liberal minded, you know, let the market decide what's the situation, you know, in hospitals because people are sick or people are dying. There is a legitimate concern for people to want, you know, an amount, an extra amount perhaps being spent, extra investments being done. Why? because now it's an issue of concern. And even if me, let's say, liberal-minded guy or lady, you know, I have a liberal vision of the world, at the end of the day, I govern. And there is a legitimate expectation for me to help comply with people's needs, you know? And that need is healthy society. Green, yes, green will not happen by itself. Tech will not happen by itself. Uh, even in, let's say, in liberal settings, you know, this tech transition, this green transition, we need to have an active conversation in society. Why? Because even if this transition is perf succeeds perfectly, even like this, you know, the societies that it will create will have to be engaged in a very serious conversation in order for this transition to be successful. Radu, tell where people can follow your genius. 
at Radu Magdin on Twitter. So see you there. I'm Radu Magdin on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, everywhere. Um, let's keep in touch. Um, you're going to see I'm a very conversational guy. So I look forward for our online conversations. I'm going to put the links on the show notes of the podcast so that you can follow Radu and the work that he does. The paper is Conference on the Future of Europe Towards a New Social Contract in a Europe that Works for Everyone. Radu, this was a privilege to have you on the podcast and I hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much. See you soon. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elf for this month of July on the 26th of July. And this one, it's already set, so there's no way for you to participate. But you have an idea what kind of work it's being done on a field. We have the event Mission Mighty Meetings. Mission Mighty Meetings is a project for Congress and event organizers focusing on creative engagement, changing expectations from participants, rapid developments in technology and a volatile context, for example, travel ban and climate change, make innovations necessary. Therefore, this project brings together organizers to share experiences and brainstorms on new formats. This project is from our friends at Project Polska and D66 International. So keep visiting www.liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily